you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast. We always enjoy visiting with our listeners every week, and I have the privilege of visiting with my friend, Rabbi Dove Lippman. This is Pastor Trey Graham joining you from Texas. Rabbi, shalom. How are you in Israel today? Shalom, Pastor. Doing great. How are things over there in Texas? It is beautiful. We enjoyed a great Thanksgiving week with our family. All of America took a time to say thank you to the Lord. We discussed this on our last podcast, how we shouldn't be thankful just one day a year. We should be thankful every day, but it's always great to set aside a special day to show gratitude to the Creator. Yeah, that's for sure. I can't say that we had the Thanksgiving experience here in Israel, but I was certainly aware of uh, the experience over there and certainly uh, try to tap into that feeling of thanks as well. We are going to talk about some important current events and news stories for our listeners, and then we're going to get to this week's parashah, the weekly Torah portion that we get to discuss together as we read and discuss the Word of God every week. But I think educate our listeners on some terminology. They've probably read the headlines and read on the news about the peace plan and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and what is that about, and who are these people? So let's talk about some terminology, and first thing I think we need to do is set the map We have the land of Israel, and the land of Israel, as commentators like to say, is about the size and shape of New Jersey. It is a tiny place. As I tell our Texan friends, the state of Texas is 32 times larger than the state of Israel. So it is a small piece of territory, and yet the United Nations... In the past, even the United States has tried to divide the land to create two states out of this tiny little state. And there's this area that people call West Bank because it's on the west side of the Jordan River. Those who believe in the Bible and the covenant call it Judea and Samaria. Other people call it occupied territory, Palestinian territory. The United Nations even wants to call it the Palestinian state, even though it's not one. So talk about this divided land as we set the stage to help our listeners understand what's going on on the ground. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's so important to understand what we're talking about because you hear these terms just thrown around. Let's remember, uh, in 1947, the United Nations made a decision, and they said the land of Israel, the Holy Land, is going to be divided into two different states. There will be an Arab state, and there will be a Jewish state, and the Jewish state was this small little sliver in two different parts, and Jerusalem was left undecided, and they would say in the future. Uh, Israel accepted it because we said, my goodness, the opportunity with God's help to have a piece of the Holy Land and return back to our homeland, how could we possibly say no? The Arabs rejected it. They rejected the idea of dividing the land, and when we declared our independence on the land that we were given, they went to war. When I say they, I mean all the Arab countries in the region, the number of times soldiers compared to the small little fledgling Jewish army can't even be described, and Miraculously, we won that war and actually ended up with a little bit more territory than just our state. In 1967, the Arab countries and the West Bank at that point, as it's called, was Jordan. 
the Gaza Strip at that point was Egypt. They all were getting ready to attack Israel, and they declared the, the mission to declare this, to destroy the state of Israel. And Israel prepared for war and actually wiped out the Egyptian Air Force with God's help before they even took off the ground. And six days, miraculously, not only did we fight off our enemies, but all of a sudden we ended up with the West Bank. We ended up with the Gaza Strip. We ended up with all of Jerusalem, which we didn't have until that point. And this was viewed as certainly an incredible moment of God giving us these lands which are biblical in nature. And then you read about in the Bible, you'll see all these lands there. Uh, the West Bank in particular is filled with the stories of, of Genesis and, and other uh, stories in our Bible. And from that moment, the world started saying the West Bank is occupied territory. You've taken it from the Palestinians. Let's correct that fact. It was Jordan. The Gaza Strip was occupied. You've taken it from the Palestinians. No, that used to be Egypt. This was never a Palestinian state. But the issue rose and rose, and then there was an uprising for the Palestinians. And the question was, what do we do about this mess? We have the Palestinians that are claiming it's their land, Israel that is ours. And again, Israel is the only recognized state in this conflict. And emerged from all this discussion, the notion again of two states, going back to sort of the plan in 1947. And that, largely due to world pressure, actually became the Israeli policy, even of the right-wing uh, Likud party. The official policy is two states for two people, that Israel will preserve its territory, and some form of territory will become a uh, Palestinian state. Now, what all the listeners have to understand is, from our perspective, a Palestinian state if we don't have certain conditions in place, means the destruction of the state of Israel. The areas that we're talking about for the Palestinian state is the high ground, the topography of the era, overlooking all the rest of Israel. It's on the eastern border, which means that ISIS and all kinds of other Islamic jihadic regimes and groups can come in there and just start raining terror down on Israel. So the big conflict in Israel right now is how do we separate from the Palestinians, because there are a few million Palestinians living here, and we don't want to have them living under our control you know, without being part of the state of Israel, which they want no part of. Uh, so what conditions do we have to make uh, to ensure that that happens? And that leads us to the discussion in the current events of uh, President Trump and his team coming forward with some kind of a new plan for the development of a Palestinian state, but also trying to take some of Israel's concerns into, into account. And remember, just the last point I'll make, some of those concerns are what happens with Jews who are currently living in the areas that we're describing as a future Palestinian state. In most models, those Jews would have to move. Uh, ironically, in a peace plan, they'd have to move because their lives would, would, would be threatened and they'd, they'd be annihilated if they lived in this Palestinian state. So that hopefully sets a little bit of order just in terms of the terminologies that we're using in the history uh, as we try to analyze what's exactly happening today. On this podcast, we have the privilege to connect the dots for our listeners between current events, the news they read or watch on television, and the scriptures. More than 150 times in the Bible, the Lord made a promise to the Jewish people, starting with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 24, Genesis 26, 28, 35. We could go down the list. The Lord made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I will give this land to you. Genesis 48, 3 and 4, the Lord said, 
I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. And what we have seen come to pass in not necessarily our lifetime, Rabbi, but in our parents' lifetime, and that is this exact fulfillment 70 years ago. 1948, the land of Israel was founded as the Jewish state. 1967, you mentioned the Six-Day War. The mathematical odds that the Jewish state would survive these attacks in 48 and 67 were impossible if not for the Lord stepping in. Why? Because the Lord makes a promise to give you this land and he keeps his promise to give you this land. And now here we are, 2017, about to go into 2018, and the world is still debating who should have this land. And those who believe the Bible, Jews or Christians, think it's not debatable. It is a settled issue that the Bible is your title deed to the land. Whereas those who reject the Bible, those who reject the scriptures, say that's an old book, it's a fairy tale, it's a legend, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have any relevance to today. We have to figure out what to do with today's situation, militarily, politically, economically. And you've got the Israeli government, I think, is straddling both sides of that, trying to figure out what to do in the modern world while believing the Bible. And then you've got the American government, formerly led by Barack Obama, now led by Donald Trump, who has expressed support for what the world calls Jewish settlements, which is actually an improper term, I believe. It's Jews being allowed to live in the Holy Land, which shouldn't be considered a pioneer or a settlement and surely not an occupation. But you've got the Trump administration saying it's not going to interfere with settlements. And those of us who are Bible-believing Americans say, why don't we just support the Jews being able to live out the covenant that God promised to the people? At the same time, I know you as an Israeli, I as an American, we have respect for the Arabs, we have respect for the Palestinians, we don't wish a bad life, an economically disadvantaged life, we don't wish that on any of them, but the question is, how do you divide up this tiny piece of land, and should you divide up this tiny piece of land? And a whole nother conversation, Rabbi, that we need to remind our listeners of, is that Israel in 1948, when it founded its state, it named its own capital which every state has the right to do, and it named the holy city of Jerusalem as its capital. The last country to be formed in the United Nations is called South Sudan. It picked its capital, a city called Juba, and the rest of the world said, okay, we'll accept your capital. But the world doesn't accept Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people because this theoretical or hoped-for Palestinian state also wants to claim Jerusalem as its capital. And so what the current event is that Americans are watching is Donald Trump, We'll have to make a decision in January, just a couple of months from now, about whether to approve the relocation of the American embassy from Tel Aviv, which is not Israel's capital, to Jerusalem, where it is. And this is all based upon a law approved by Congress, signed by the president, 1995, saying you must move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But it has a caveat that the president will review this every six months and delay it. And every president since then, we're talking Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, now Donald Trump, in the first time he's had to face this, signed the waiver to delay it. Based upon we need to learn more about the security conditions and we need to see more negotiations and peace talks going on. I wish my government would just do what is right because it is right and then deal with the consequences after that. Yeah, for us, it's it's very puzzling, this notion that we have a capital, and yet it's rejected uh, by the world. And, I, and, I, and, and to remind all the listeners, it wasn't even the founders of the state of Israel 
who declared Jerusalem as our capital. But once again, it's in our Bible, it's in our heart and soul for 2,000 years. We were saying next year in Jerusalem because it was always the capital uh, of the Jewish people. That's where we returned to. David Ben-Gurion, who was a secular uh, founder and prime minister, first prime minister of Israel, when he was dealing with all the various UN committees and commissions, uh, he held up the Bible and he said, this is our deed to this land. We don't need anybody else uh, to, to give us that right. And Jerusalem is mentioned close to 700 times in the Bible. It's not mentioned one time in the Quran. And I'm not saying that we can't find that we, we, we believe in giving freedom of worship to everyone in Jerusalem. And we're not closing the Muslims out, but to suggest that that's their capital, to suggest that this is a, a place that they've yearned for is, is just not true. Uh, historically, uh, Muslims who are in Jerusalem turn to face Mecca when they pray. We turn three times a day uh, towards Jerusalem. And and from our perspective, uh, the, uh, the right thing to do is the right thing to do. And there are many other countries that will follow suit. Once the United States uh, moves that embassy, it's a symbolic gesture, but it's a symbolic gesture with a tremendous weight behind it uh, in terms of this issue. And I want to mention one more thing. The piece of land which is slated to be the uh, location of the embassy is in what we called West Jerusalem. West Jerusalem was always part of the state of Israel from its inception. In the 1967 Six-Day War, we took over, uh, we regained control, I should say, of East Jerusalem. That's the part that's contested. So the embassy is sitting in West Jerusalem. There's no question whether that's part of Israel uh, or not from any governing body or international body. And we certainly hope uh, that that happens. And uh, certainly looking forward to a, a, a great day when a United States leader stands up and makes that move happen. And our American audience needs to be reminded that one of the reasons that evangelical voters in the last presidential election supported Donald Trump by a great majority over Hillary Clinton was this promise that he made, that he would move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And so those American voters who supported Trump are now saying, you made the promise, now we expect you to keep the promise, and we'll be watching in January. Yeah, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. And, and like you said, sometimes what's right is right and, and has to be done. And there's a few different actions that Israel has taken. 1967 war is a great example. We were surrounded on all sides. Everybody was telling us not to attack, preemptive attack. And we said, we can't sit here and let ourselves be attacked and annihilated. And with God's help, we took out that preemptive attack, and the miracles of the Six-Day War took place. And the world might have cried foul in the beginning, but it was clearly the right thing to do. Uh, Israel was faced with Saddam Hussein developing a nuclear reactor in Iraq, and we said, we can't live with a dictator like that in our region with nuclear weapons. And we took out the nuclear reactor, and the world went crazy, including the United States. And lo and behold, you see decades later what, what a fortuitous move that was with God's help. And uh, even the United States has to be thankful that Israel took that step, given our war in Iraq. And sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. You have to do what's right. This is one of those examples where I think we're waiting uh, for someone to step up and do what's right. On the podcast each week, the rabbi and I get to share with you a news story or a current events item like we're discussing right now, but we also have the privilege to study the Word of God together, what's called in Hebrew the parashah, the weekly Torah portion that Jews around the world study and many Christians do each week to understand the Bible and to do it in a unified way. And this week, the parashah has the title, 
Vayishlach, and it means, and he sent. And it comes from Genesis chapters 32 through 36. And this is continuing a story that we talked about over the last few episodes, which is about Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, as we remember last week's Torah portion, had to flee because of the dispute or the deception of taking over the birthright and the blessing from his older brother Esau. He fled away and he chooses to come back home. And this is going to be a story about sibling rivalry. It's going to be a story about family trouble. It's going to be a story about coming back home to your family. But I think there's the symbolism of if you run away from the Heavenly Father, you can also return home then as well. There's no doubt that's the case. And the amazing thing is that Jacob has been away for a long period of time, over two decades, uh, from his home, totally isolated, not connected to his spiritual father, physical and spiritual father, uh, Isaac, and that figure in his life and off there on his own creating his family. And he comes back and he has this encounter with Esau, and, and, and he's afraid at first, and he, he pleads with God for help. And many of the commentaries talk about this incredible distinction in terms of just two terminologies uh, that are used, because Esau comes, he's doing well, he's got his family and his army, and Jacob has his tribes, and he's coming. And when they describe what they have, when they actually are communicating with each other, you see how Jacob has stood with his faith, and that's what kept him going uh, to bring him back to the spiritual homeland. And it's an amazing, amazing statement where Jacob asks Esau, you know, what is all this that you, that you have? And Esau's response, and this is an amazing, amazing point, and, you know, the words of the Bible uh, we take very, very carefully, and we, and we read them, and we want to understand exactly what they mean and learn from them. And when Jacob sees Esau, Esau says to him, this is in chapter 33, verse 9. In Hebrew, it's, Vayomer Esav, Yesh li Rav. Esau says, I have a lot. I have a lot of stuff. Jacob says, in verse 11, he says, Hanani Elohim, God has been good to me, and I have everything that I need. That difference, first of all, of I have everything, and God has given it to me, versus Esau, who says, I have a lot, which implies I can have a lot more, no mention of God whatsoever. That's a clarifying moment for Jacob, where he realizes, I was able to hold on to that faith, and now I have you know, the right to be the spiritual father uh, in the land of Israel, where you have to be a person who recognizes God and sees that God is the one who's making all this happen. And it actually says that in verse 18, chapter 33, verse 18, and Jacob came shalem, he came perfect, whole, uh, back to the city of Shechem in the land of Israel, and he you know, takes his inheritance again as he returns to the Holy Land. When we see the connection between the current events and the parashah, the Bible portion, we talked about 1948, the Jewish state was founded as fulfillment of prophecy. The Jews were able to have a homeland. And then we talked about in previous segments, your family personally moving to the land to fulfill the prophecies that the Lord said he would bring his people, the Jews, back to the Holy Land. And we see Jacob who is your ancestor, coming back to the land. He had to flee. He had to run away. He came back home. And the parallel that I mentioned a moment ago, there's the chance to physically go home. 
There's also the chance to spiritually go home because sometimes we run away from the Heavenly Father for reasons of pride or arrogance, like you're talking about Esau. And I think the term is self-sufficient. I don't need the Lord. I don't need anybody else. I have everything I need. Whereas the humble person understands that they are needy, that they are in desperate need of a Redeemer, and they look to the Lord, and the Lord gives them everything they need for our Christian audience, I want to remind them of one of the parables of Jesus, one of those teaching stories that Jesus gave. It comes from Luke chapter 15. It's a famous story called the prodigal son or the lost son. And the story in summary is that there was a father who had two sons and the older son stayed and remained faithful and was a workaholic and tried to earn the father's love. The younger son ran away, took his inheritance, spent it all in a foreign land, wasted his money, and eventually he ended up destitute and poor and hungry, and he decided to go back home. But he said, I could never be my father's son again. I'll ask him if I could be a slave, because at least the slave has a meal to eat every day. Jesus tells the story of the younger son who comes home, and he is welcomed back by the father, not as a slave, but as a child, as a restored family member and he kills the fatted calf and they have a big party to return and the christian story of the prodigal son is all of us wander away from the lord we give in to temptation we give in to ego and pride we become self-sufficient like esau was in genesis 33 or the younger son was in luke 15 story we think we can do it on our own and always we will wake up and realize we cannot do this life on our own. We are dependent upon our Creator, and thankfully His grace says, come home. And that's the story of, uh, of Genesis from our perspective. You know, it's in such consonance with what you're saying, because you see the direct connection, number one, in terms of coming home physically, and also the connection between spiritual observance and spiritual connection and our, our, our ability to stay in the land of Israel and to, to earn uh, the land of Israel. And throughout the Bible, we have these teachings about uh, you know, keeping the faith, and uh, that's what the people of Israel did for 2,000 years. We, everywhere we were around the world, we, 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 as hard as we could, we stayed steadfast to our faith, both in terms of the ritual and in terms of that the day will come when the biblical prophecies will come true. And now we're in a time where we're experiencing it, and it's an incredible thing. And the book of Genesis is what really cements that relationship and shows us these lessons through the stories of our matriarchs and patriarchs. We are talking about the Torah portion for this week, and it comes from Genesis chapters 32 through 36. And there's a verse, Rabbi, that I think I want you to comment on, and it's Genesis 32, verse 28, when Jacob... Yaakov, in Hebrew, is given a new name. He wrestles with the Lord. He wrestles all night long. And he's changed the name from Jacob, or Yaakov, to Yisrael, Israel. And you're the Hebrew speaker better than I. Israel, the one who wrestles with God or struggles with God. El being a Hebrew name for God. I know that when the state was being founded in 1947 and 48, you already mentioned the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, there was debate. What will this new country be called? Some thought it should be called Judah. There were other names, and they settled on the name Israel, the one who struggles with God. That's not just your country's name. That's your people's name. Talk about the name change and the significance of it. 
So that name, uh, Yisrael, is very, very important for us because it's a name that Jacob earned as he showed that he was able to withstand the challenges of, of life, life outside of Israel, life further away from God at a certain level, uh, struggling with the angel of, of Esau, uh, which is a figurative description of him uh, overcoming his spiritual challenges as well. And, uh, you know, the, the ability to overcome that battle and to, to rise to the level of spiritual leader, uh, that's what Israel really captures. And Jacob is sort of the, uh, actually comes from the name of holding on to his brother's heel as he was uh, sort of, sort of you know, a following, as opposed to Israel, which is this lofty name, this high spiritual name. And it's really an incredible thing that when they were deciding what to call the state, that they you know, reached for that, because that's reaching for greatness. That's reaching for leadership. That's reaching for a higher level spirituality. And whenever we say Israel, that's what one really should be thinking about, not just a physical land or a state, but what it stands for. And what it stands for is that ability to overcome those challenges that, that come our way and to prevail and to reach closer to God. And one more Bible passage in this week's Torah portion from Genesis 35 that I'd like us to discuss. And that is when Jacob is returning to the promised land. It was called the land of Canaan. And because he begins to possess it, it will later be known as the land of Israel. In Genesis chapter 35, starting in verse 2, Jacob is this spiritual leader that you talk about. And he says to all those who are coming back with him, Get rid of all the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, the house of God, where I will build an altar to God who has answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Then verse 4 says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. So the story here is a spiritual leader who says, We're not going to play games with God. We're not going to include false deities, idol worship, magic, witchcraft, sorcery, good luck. We're not going to depend on anything else except we're going to focus on the one true God. Jacob did that in Genesis 35, not just for himself, but he was a spiritual leader to his family at the same time. Absolutely. Let's remember, and this is something which unites our faiths and makes us uh, spiritual brothers and sisters, and that is that this is when monotheism was being introduced to the world as a whole, and, and fighting against uh, paganism and fighting against idolatry. Abraham introduced it, but the people all around them were idolaters and pagan, and this is a constant battle, which you see throughout the Bible, and the people felt this pull. And uh, what binds us together is that call of Jacob, especially when he returns to the land of Israel. Uh, but in general, wherever we are, and that is steadfast clinging to the notion of one God, of this divine being that's, that's beyond our comprehension, obviously, uh, the creator, uh, the, the person who pulls the strings, so to speak, uh, in, the, in the running of the world, and to make sure that we don't have uh, those foreign elements. Uh, this is something which is repeated through and through, but it's that spiritual leader. It's that Israel. It's that Israel who is able to take that leadership and really say, we have to get rid of uh, all of this and have no, none of this in our midst. That's the only way that we can be complete uh, in our service of God. And uh, there are some people today, by the way, who talk about, you know, we don't really have that drive today 
for the uh, physical idols. So what, how does that relate to us? And I've heard many discuss there are other things in the world that are idolatry today. It could be the pursuit of money, the, you know, certainly the pursuit of physical things that can pull us so far away from the spirituality and from connecting to God in the way that we should. And, uh, you know, that in today's world, uh, that could be described as the idolatry. And Jacob's words could be applied today completely to, to remove that urge. Of course, you can have things in a home and, and the basic the things that we need, but that should not be our pursuit in life. That should not be what we're striving for. And I have no doubt that the Christian faith agrees with those values as well. We do. We know that we were created to worship. And if we worship the one true God, and we believe Jesus is the Savior, the the Redeemer, if we worship the one true God, we find spiritual fulfillment. And if we don't worship the one true God, we will still worship. But we will choose to worship false gods. We will worship idols. And you're right. Some in the past might have worshipped altars and statues and paintings or even the trees in the mountains but today people are tempted to still worship but it's the paycheck or the job title or the possessions because we were made to worship god we will always worship either the one true god or the not true god and i think it's a great way to finish our conversation for today from genesis 35 is jacob said not going to do that in my house We're going to worship the one true God. So as a father, like my rabbi friend, as a husband, we don't want to just be men of God ourselves. We want to raise up the next generation of men and women of God. Absolutely. And that's something which has to be passed on uh, to the children Uh, from the youngest of ages. We have in our tradition, you know, when the children start to speak, the first things you try to teach them are verses. Uh, the famous verse of Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Let those, let them be the first words that our children say, even if they don't understand what they're saying, just that it has that impact and they grow up uh, with that value. And that has to be something uh, which we pass to the next generation and, and fight any kind of influences that are out there that try to pull our children and our, our families away from that. Rabbi, I always enjoy our conversations, and I'm always thrilled when the modern news and the truth of the Bible intersect. Thank you, my friend. Enjoy speaking with you. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much, Pastor, and to all the listeners, and Shabbat Shalom to everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.